This morning's scripture is from the book of James, chapter 1, verses 2 through 12. Hear the word of the Lord. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whether you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work, so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossoms fall and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. And thanks to Meg. Meg's one of our uh, high school graduates. So as we celebrate uh, high school graduation and promotion and all that, we're excited uh, to have them as a part of our service. Uh, Zach Champion read first service, and uh, we're just grateful for both of you guys, and congrats. It's great. Um, One more uh, people thing that I want to mention before we move on is that um, uh, Daniel and Lena Ellingberg are in the building uh, they're not in this uh, room right now, but uh, this is our new college and career director. We've been praying about this for a while. Um, we, uh, we have identified uh, Daniel as the, the right guy to lead our, our college ministries and our quarter-life ministry. And uh, uh, he, they, trial by fire, they started with a retreat last weekend uh, with the quarter-life group, and uh, Daniel's just completed his first full week here, and uh, we threw him in the deep end of the pool. He's actually teaching the high school class right now. But uh, please keep an eye out for there, There's the faces. Watch for them. And I uh, would uh, encourage you guys to, to give them a good welcome uh, to Charlotte and to our church. They're moving here from Atlanta. And from what I understand, uh, the, their church in Atlanta, in town, uh, PCA, is, uh, actually has, I think, the same photo up uh, as during their prayer time and is praying as they send these guys out. And we're praying as uh, they are received here. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the ways you're building this church. We thank you for Daniel and Lena, uh, for gathering uh, them uh, into our midst, Lord, and to do your work here, Lord. We, we look forward to seeing in the years ahead where, where you're going to move all that. Uh, we thank you for the graduates who are heading off to college and are uh, reminded, Lord, that uh, you have plans to prosper them. And we pray, Lord, that they would uh, walk closely to you and seek your wisdom. Uh, Father, this passage this morning uh, certainly uh, speaks to that. And um, it deserves far better, as it always does, Lord, um, than, than I'm able to give it. Uh, but we ask, Lord, that these would not be my words, but your words, and not my thoughts, but your thoughts. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So if you were here uh, last week, we started a new series called Faith That Works. We're walking through the, the book of James, and uh, Rick walked us through kind of those first four verses, and he talked about how trials produce in us uh, steadfastness. Steadfastness produces maturity. So if you were here, you'll, you'll remember that, and you'll remember that, that um, wonderful verse, verse 2, that says, Consider it pure joy whenever you encounter trials of many kinds, which is probably most of your life verses, I'm guessing, most of you in here, right? So, um, which is, it should be, but it's not. We would, uh, wouldn't you, like, uh, dial in better with a verse that said, um, blessed, uh, consider it pure joy when you have a trial-free week. Consider it pure joy when you don't have to deal with it. Just consider it pure joy, right? But 
uh, we're told that in our times of trial, God is so much at work that we can actually rejoice in it. And that leads into verses 5 through 8, which we're going to look at today, and we'll look at the end of that passage next week. But in verses 5 through 8, what we have to understand, probably the most crucial thing for you to get from the, from the beginning of this sermon is this. James hasn't changed the topic. He's still talking about the same thing. He's talking about adversity. He's talking about how we bear up under trial and suffering. It's the same idea. And Rick, last week, you'll remember he gave us this word picture of... Um, uh, what it feels like, you, you can picture that moment where you catch the ice and you slip and you fall, right? And you know that, that, that quick adrenaline that you feel, that shot to the nose where your airway just opens up and, and, um, and a, a second prior, everything was fine, you're minding your own business, and then suddenly you're fighting for your balance, right? You know what that feels like, not just slipping on ice or falling down some stairs. You know what that feels like in that second before the airbag goes off, right? You know what that feels like when, uh, when the papers get served, you know what that feels like when the doctor sits down and says, we need to talk. Like, you know what that feels like in those moments, that quick surge where a second before everything was fine and now suddenly something significant is heading you towards a fall. There's also other scenarios where this happens and it's maybe not quite so quick. It's more of a slow slide. And um, I thought of our graduates this, uh, um, this week and uh, a book that often gets kicked out around graduation season is the great theologian Dr. Seuss's uh, oh, the places you'll go. And in that, he, uh, he says this. He says, you'll come down from the lurch with an unpleasant bump, and chances are then you'll be in a slump. And when you're in a slump, you're not in for much fun, and slumping yourself is not easily done. And then he goes, you would think that he'd go on from there to give advice about how to get out of the slump. He doesn't. He just says, you'll deal with it. It's okay. Let's move on. So your hardship might be uh, a quick fall. Uh, it might be a slow slump. Either way, James says, consider it joy. Consider it pure joy. James is asking us to get a different perspective on our suffering, a different perspective, uh, an eternal perspective, because suffering has the capacity to grow us and to mature us. Guys, it also has the capacity to be entirely wasted on us. It might make us more mature, but if you don't let it, it might make you more bitter, more angry, more calloused, more cynical, more, uh, just more ticked at life, right? That's wasted suffering. So verses 5 through 8, James says, I don't want you to do that. He says, Let me, let's expand this. Let's talk about what to do. And he answers with, we're going to answer three questions that I think are kind of posed in, in, this, in this passage. And that's this. When we find ourselves in a place of suffering, adversity, hardship, whatever, what do we need? Where do we get it? How do we ask for it? Is there a simpler outline than that? That's, there, there's the sermon this morning. What do we need? How do we get it? Uh, where, how do we ask for it? Okay, that's it. So the first question is simply this. What do we need? And this might not be intuitive. And even if it is, it might just be because you know how to give the Sunday school answer. Because when you're in a tight spot, what do you say that you need? You need out. You need the quickest escape hatch, right? You need uh, to find the closest exit. You need peace. You need comfort. You need things to go back to the way that they were before this happened, back to normal. You need a tangible solution. You need the doctor to call with encouraging news. You need the person that uh, hurt you to finally apologize. You need some extra money to cover the bills. Those are the things that we think we need. And all those things, by the way, would be helpful. I think it's okay to ask for all of those things, right? But James says that when you're in adversity, that's not what you most need. That's what verse 5 is about. What do you need? You need wisdom. Verse 4 says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature 
and complete, not lacking anything. And then verse 5 picks up on that idea of lacking and says, if you lack specifically wisdom, you should ask God. In other words, what, what's happening here in verse 4 and 5 is, one day you will be mature and whole and complete and perfected. One day. But that's not today. <laughs> you know that when you woke up this morning, right? One day perseverance will finish its work, but that's not today. So James says, in the meantime, what if you're in the middle of a mess? What do you lack? You lack wisdom. Between the the perfect then and the imperfect now, what do you most need? You need wisdom. That's true of all of us. Um, When James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, he's not saying, ah, most of you guys probably have it figured out, but there might be a few in here that lack wisdom. Let me tell you what to do. He's saying, no, in the Greek, it's a conditional. He's saying, when you encounter these moments, because all of us will, all of us will encounter um, difficult trials where we don't have the categories for them. Questions will arise that we don't have the answers for. Uh, I love the way that uh, George MacDonald puts it. He says, every difficulty indicates something more than our theory of life can bear. That's true of all of us, right? And by the way, that's, for the, you scientists and techie people in here, that's the scientific method, right? We all have a theory, a hypothesis of life, an idea about the way that the world should work. We all have this idea, right? And we regularly come to the place where we need to yield that hypothesis to new information, where we, we come up against something where we go, I don't have the categories for this. I, I, don't, I don't know what to do with this information, Right? Um, this does not compute. And we can either get stuck in that or we can, we can change our hypothesis to, to accept the new information, that we, the, to make the, the, the data fit. We yield to a higher wisdom. Some of you, I'm going to, uh, if, if this sticks, let it stick. If not, just let it roll off. But I think that there's a good chance that some of you in here are refusing to deal with life right now because life is not playing by the rules that you think life should play by. And so you've just decided not to deal at all. You're not submitting your hypothesis to new information, which is, by the way, why um, Solomon says, or the, 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 the um, writer of wisdom in Proverbs 3 says, uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding because your own understanding can get you stuck. Wisdom says... My perspective isn't working, so I need God's perspective here. I need wisdom. I need to yield to something uh, greater. So what is wisdom? We can define that a ton of ways. I'm going to throw up a bunch of definitions here on the screen. Wisdom has been described many ways. It's practical righteousness for everyday living. It's, whoa, that went right by. So it's endowing the the heart. Hold on. Let me get up here. it's endowing the heart with the right things that we need, with the things that we need for right conduct in life. But uh, those are some helpful definitions, I think. But really what it is, is it's getting God's lens on life. It's seeing things through God's eyes as well as we can imperfectly. It's seeing things the way that God sees them. It's having his perspective on life. And the way that we get at that often through the Old, the Old Testament has this phrase that they call the fear of the Lord that describes that. And I put up several verses. They're they're all over the scripture talking about the fear of the Lord. Uh, That is wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord. You see that in Proverbs and Job and Psalms and everywhere else. It's not talking about being terrified of God. Um, John well takes care of this for us in 1 John 4. He says, perfect love casts out fear. So it's not talking about that kind of fear. This is about giving God his proper weight. 
his proper weightiness in it's deciding that he is going to be the dominant voice to guide your life, to guide your steps, to guide your motives, that he's going to be the dominant one in all that. That's God's wisdom, right? It's about God speaking into the, the practical ways that we live. It's, it's seeing things through his eyes, the way that he wants us to see them. It's his lens on life. I like this description. It's a God-given understanding of the way the world really works. It's, it's seeing things with truth on, the way the world really works. If you try to push through hardship without God's wisdom, not only are you not dealing with the trial, but now you're dealing with the effects of trying to live your life apart from the one who is meant to guide you, who can give you the best perspective on your life. It's like you're already lost in the woods and now you've just thrown out your compass. So James says, when you're in the moment, when you're in the trial, seek wisdom, seek God's perspective on this. So in adversity, what do we need? What do we need? We need wisdom. Okay, well, how, uh, where, do, where do we get it? That's the second question. And the answer is very, very simple. If any of you asks, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God. So where do we get it? It's not a, it's, this is not a where, this is a who. We ask God. We can approach hardship with prayerless folly or with prayerful wisdom. Either way, we've got questions. The questions, if you can't, you know how this works. When your questions are just stuck, you've got this inner monologue going. And when you're in hardship and you can't get it out of your own head, the questions that you tend to probably ask are things like, why me? How do I, how do I get relief? How do I get out of this? What's the quickest way out? But if, have you noticed, those of you who have been, you've sought wisdom, you've sought the Lord's perspective, and then you suddenly realize that maybe he didn't answer the questions, he changed the questions. He changed the questions to, how can I deal with this in a way that, that brings God glory, right? How, how can I understand this trial from, from God's perspective? How can I use this as an opportunity? What is he trying to teach me? How is he trying to grow me and, and mature me? The, the questions change. James wants to encourage us also by reminding us when we ask these questions, who we're asking. And so he, you'll notice there's these three very quick phrases in here. Uh, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. And then he goes on to describe just a couple things we need to know about that. Who gives generously to all without finding fault. Guys, those are three very encouraging concepts. I think that James is challenging plenty of your misconceptions about God by just giving you those three concepts. Those very few well-chosen words. First, it says that God gives, gives generously, Right? The Greek accents this. It actually says um, that you should ask the giving God. It's it's putting an emphasis on this is his character, right? So why do we need to hear that? Because you need to hear these three things. Why do you need to hear that one? Because I think when you're in the midst of suffering, you're probably more likely to think that God is taking something from you. That God is denying you something than to think that God is actually a giving God. But God wants to give. It's God's joy to give wisdom. In in fact, if wisdom is seeing things through his lens, then can you imagine the joy that he finds in you finally seeing things the way that he sees them about a particular thing in your life? If your parents, maybe you've experienced that. You know what this feels like. I I was trying to think of an example. In in my own life, I can think of Benjamin, my oldest. When he was about four, um, one night before bed, um, I'm tucking him in, and he he asked this question. This conversation started with something like, why do sharks eat people? That was his question, I think. 
But I realized that the question he was really asking was underneath that question. It was, why is there suffering? Why, why are there scary things? Why, why, why do people die? Why is there hurt and why is there violence? And, and as we started getting to that stuff, I realized we weren't talking about sharks anymore, right? And so we're, we're standing, I remember we're standing in his room, we're kind of looking out his window, and I was, it's just this moment where I said, hey, buddy, you know, the world doesn't work the way it was meant to work. The world's a broken place. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to, to, to fix what's broken and, and one day to make everything work the way that it's supposed to. And there'll be a day where there's no more violence and there's no more scary things and there's no more hurt. There's no more death or pain or any of that. And that's why Jesus came. And one day everything is just going to be exactly the way it was meant to be. It's going to be perfect. And when I'm, while we're having this conversation, I don't remember how this, uh, how this evolved, but eventually we're looking out the window and we're kind of shoulder to shoulder, like looking out the window. And I'm trying to describe... What, what will this world look like one day when it's perfect? You know, I'm trying to describe it from my cul-de-sac, but I'm trying to d- describe it bigger than that, you know? And um, <laughs> there's this pause, and he just goes, wow. And in that moment, I realized, like, he sees what I see, right? Like, he longs for what I long for. Like, he's excited about what I'm excited about. He's, he's got the same perspective and the same longing that I do at age four that would cause him just in a moment to, to take it all in and go, wow. Guys, as a parent, you know what that feels like when, when your kids suddenly, they don't, not just they understand what you're saying, they're willing to abide by it, but they see it the way you see it. And there's great joy in that. Now, imagine how God feels when he grants that wisdom to you and he says, now, you see, don't you? Now, as best as you can understand, you see it like I see it. God loves to do that. He loves to give generously. Then James says, the second one, he says, he gives to all. Now, why do you need to hear that? Because it is probably more likely for you to believe that God gives to the super Christian, that God will answer certain prayers. I mean, maybe God listens to Moshe. Moshe's pretty awesome. He's a pretty good guy, right? Maybe Doug I mean, Doug's, Doug's probably pretty close to Jesus. Probably get, Doug gets most of his prayers answered, right? But not me. But what is being said here, we understand that we've been given as children of God the same cross, the same, the same salvation, the same Jesus. And we're given, like, this, this generous inclination of God's heart for us is for all of us. It's not just for some of us. And we need to hear that. It's a verse for all of God's children, Right? And then this last one, I love this. In the Greek, it's two words. Here in the NIV, it's three. Without finding fault. The ESV says without reproach. And why do we need to hear that? Because even if you're willing to abide by those first couple, you're willing to say, okay, all right, I get it. God gives generously. He gives to all. But that doesn't mean he's happy about it. He's probably pretty ticked. He's maybe not super into this. He's doing it just maybe because he because he has to. And so, yes, he gives to me, but he also says, wow, again, really? Don't you think you should have figured this out by now? Or he says, oh, you need, you're coming up short financially. What did you do with the last bit I gave you? Oh, fine, I'll give you some more, right? We can feel that the, we, we picture maybe God's giving, but he's got his arms crossed. God's giving, but man, while he's handing it to us, he's holding his nose, right? He must be upset with me. And yet we see that God doesn't, pour guilt on us when we ask for wisdom. I picture the attitude of, when I was thinking about this, um, God giving but with a bad attitude, I was picturing Groundhog Day. Do you remember this movie with Bill Murray? Um, and we see, if you, if you haven't seen it, you just need to know Bill Murray's living the same day 
again and again and again the same exact day, right? But there's, we discover later on in the movie that in his errands, he's decided that every, every day at the same exact time, he's going to make sure that he's under the tree where this kid is about to fall out of so that he can catch the kid. And so every day, you know, for however many days he's living, this, he's there under the tree to catch the kid, but he's not happy about it. Um, so watch this. Oh, it's just double clicking past. Okay, here we go. And... What do you say? What do you say? You little brat. You have never thanked me. I'll see you tomorrow. Maybe. <laughs> so do you picture that? The, the, the God said, okay, fine. I'll, I'll, I'll give you. You have never thanked me, you brat. Right? And then we wonder, like, okay, he bailed us out today, but if, if he's not happy with this, maybe he'll be there tomorrow. Maybe he won't. Right? But the beauty of Scripture is that God, God doesn't scold us for, for asking he doesn't berate us for our deficiency. He actually loves answering prayers for wisdom, which I wonder if that's why he puts us so often in places where we feel the deficiency and we know that we need his wisdom and we ask for it because he loves to answer those prayers and he loves to give that. And all of us, because of those three concepts, should have great encouragement as we come to God asking for wisdom, knowing that he gives generously. He gives to all. He gives without finding fault, without heaping guilt on you for asking. So what do we need? Wisdom. How do we get it? We ask God, right? And then the third one. See, this is so easy, right? The third one is this. How do we ask for it? And the way that James answers this one is by telling you how not to ask for it with three images. In verses 6 through 8, he says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So there's three images there. Do you see them? He uses in verse 8, he uses the word unstable, um, something that's just shifty. It's, it doesn't have a, a, a basis, a strength to it. Uh, I think that that's really tied to the, the second image in verse 6 where he talks about uh, a wave of the sea. Uh, a wave is, is aimless, it's here and then it's gone, it's up and then it's down, it's, it's, uh, it just kind of comes and goes, right? Um, James says, don't, don't be a wave. Says, and I love that picture on your bulletin cover there. This is the Roker Lighthouse up in northeast England. And um, I love that the photographer captured the, the solidity of that wave, but you know there's nothing solid about that wave. It wasn't there a second before he took that picture, and three seconds afterwards that thing was gone again, right? It's intransient, it's impermanent. And yet, what I love about this picture is that on the, on the left, you have that, that image of intransience and impermanence and here today, gone tomorrow. But on the right, you've got that picture of solidity, uh, strength, right? So we're offered those same two options. James says, when you ask, don't vacillate like the, the wave. Stand steadfast, stand confident, like the lighthouse, right? But we got to ask ourselves this question. Does that mean, and it sure looks like it from this passage, does that mean that there's no room for doubt? Does it mean that God only answers the perfectly confident prayer? If so, we're all in trouble, right? Because we live a life of faith, and with faith is a, is a mingled bit of doubt because faith is, is uh, being sure of what we, we don't see and the things that we don't see, we're, we, we're prone to in our, in our lower moments to ask questions about whether that thing we can't see is, is really there or not. I think there's many reasons why we know that that's not what's happening here, but I'll give you two. One of them is um, that we, when we look through the Gospels, we see Jesus dealing very tenderly and compassionately with doubters. I, I, three of them that come to mind are John the Baptist, Thomas, 
and uh, the father of the epileptic boy who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Do you remember that? And we see Jesus entering into all of those with a lot of compassion and, and tenderness. What James is describing is different. And we get at it best, and this is the second reason why I think this is, um, he's not talking about having perfect confidence in our prayers. It's this third image, uh, the image of the double-minded. Uh, the Greek word, uh, it's inter- this is interesting. We think that James probably made this word up. <laughs> uh, this word doesn't appear anywhere else in the scriptures. It appears twice in James. It doesn't appear anywhere else in Greek literature slash documents slash anything prior to James. So this might just be a cool word that, that James made up. And it's provocative in that it literally means um, not necessarily double-minded. Uh, this doesn't translate well in English, but it's double-souled. Having two souls. Okay. So what does that mean? Well, a double-souled person isn't uh, just a person who doubts. A double-souled person is a person whose soul is trying to face in two different directions. Right? They're curious about God's wisdom, but they're not committed to it. They've got other options, too. There's other wisdom out there, right? can shop around for the, the best deal on, on wisdom. Uh, we'll shop for answers. If, if God's wisdom matches what looks like the best scenario going forward with our preferences, they'll do it. Uh, but if they get a better offer or an easier path, maybe they'll go that way instead, which means that while they were seeking God's wisdom, they weren't really seeking God's wisdom. They were seeking a good outcome for them personally. Right? Think of the father of the boy who says, I believe, help my unbelief. Think about that one. He's not double-souled. He's fighting for faith. He's fighting to trust. He wants to believe, and he's willing to give both his faith and his doubt to the Lord. He's singularly focused. He wants Jesus to have it all. He's just struggling. He says, I I recognize that I I don't have the kind of faith that I wish I did here, but I'm trusting you for for all of it. Thomas and John are the same thing. We see Jesus coming into that. Um, They invite Jesus into their faith and their doubt. So this isn't about them being curious but not committed. For the double-souled, it is. They're curious about God's wisdom. They're not committed. And James says, if that's the case, then why even bother? Why, why bother asking? Guys, before, I've said this before, um, before you ask God for his will, you have to make up your mind that you're going to do what he tells you. Otherwise, we're just playing. Let me, let me meddle a little bit, okay? Do you want God's will for your marriage? Those of you who are married. Let me ask again. Do you really, <laughs> do you really want God's will for your marriage? And when God says you need to die daily to your own needs and sacrifice yourself fully for the needs of another, do you really want God's will for your marriage? When you're not happy and it's gotten hard and God says, I want you to stay in it anyway, do you really want God's will for your marriage? Let me meddle again. Do you want God's will for your finances? Do you really want God's will for your finances? And when God says, well, you know, um, all of it, it doesn't belong to you. It's a gift that I'm giving you. I'm asking you to steward it. I don't want you to live on more than 90% of it. I want you to be generous with it. And the other 10%, I want you to give to my kingdom work. Do you really still want God's will for your finances? Let me meddle a little bit more. Rick, a few weeks ago, preached a great sermon about money. Here's the difference between the committed and the curious. The, the, the committed one would say, I'm convicted on this. 
I need to make some changes. I've, not, I've never tithed. This is, I, I'm now con- I, I see that biblically I'm supposed to do this, right? I see that biblically I'm supposed to look at my money differently. The curious says, that was a good sermon. Felt, uh, I, I got to think about that a little bit, I guess. But between the time that the sermon had been preached a few weeks ago and today, maybe nothing's really changed, right? Do you really want God's will for your life? Or are you just curious? A double-souled person is curious about God's wisdom, but he's not committed to it. And there's a couple obvious ones that I've just mentioned, but there's plenty more. And unfortunately, some of these are so sneaky and insipid because they're part of what we would call our our American conventional wisdom or or common wisdom that maybe the double-souled person doesn't even realize they're being double-souled because they've bought into a, a, a cultural thing that is just a common assumption, although there's no defense or basis for it in reality. I'm going to give you a couple of e- examples of that. Um, and before, first let me say this. Th- this is, these things I'm about to share with you, here's the trap, right? The wisdom that you take into your suffering, if it's good wisdom, if it's God's wisdom, is going to help you. It's going to give you perspective and help you understand it and have the right perspective on it. It's going to help you through, right? But if you take the wrong wisdom in, not only is it not going to help you, it's actually going to be poison. It's going to hurt you. It, it, it will make suffering unbearable for you because you have the wrong view of suffering, right? The wrong view of wisdom, the wrong wisdom for suffering actually makes things worse. It's like this. Your car's low on fuel. That's a problem. You go to the gas station and you mistakenly put diesel in your tank. Not only have you not solved the problem, you've now created a much worse problem, Right? If the wisdom that you approach your suffering with is a lie, not only do you not have the right fuel, but the wrong fuel is going to make your situation worse. Not if that makes sense. Okay. Let me give you a couple of examples then. We're going to call this alternate wisdom for the double sold. Okay. Here's a couple of uh, bits of advice that the world would give you or, or common wisdom, conventional wisdom as it relates to suffering. Okay. There are plenty of examples. I'm just, I only have time for three. In fact, I don't really even have time for three, but I'm going to give them to you anyway. Um, number one, I don't deserve this. We go through some, of, some sort of hardship and we, we tell ourselves, I deserve better than this, which is what happens when we watch too many commercials about I'm worth it or this is the luxury that you deserve or we read books like The Body You Deserve, right? Where did we get this idea that, we were, that we're supposed to live a a cushy, pain-free life, that we somehow deserve that, that hardship is somehow beneath us. What is that idea based on? You go ahead and believe that if you want, but ask yourself, how do I support that claim? I don't see any place in the Bible that supports it. If you let that concept creep in, can you imagine how poorly equipped you will be to handle adversity? It will be... It will be diesel fuel to you. I had a, um, I, I used to take, uh, when I was a youth pastor, I would take mission trips to Mexico. I'd take high schoolers to Mexico. And um, one, one year we had several kids get uh, Montezuma's Revenge. You guys know what this is. Not pleasant. And um, we had this one uh, freshman girl, and uh, I, if she's listening on the podcast, I just want you, you turned out all right. It's, it's, you, you, you did great. You're solid. But, and she, in fact, if she, would, if she was here, she would probably tell you more information than I'm about to. But, um, she told me that she could not 
take her Pepto-Bismol unless it was mixed into a bowl of ice cream because that's how she did it at home. I said, girl, we're in Mexico. Like, we're surrounded on three sides by jungle and I don't have a car, right? <laughs> I cannot get you a bowl of ice cream. And she said, she said, mom says I'm a princess and princesses get ice cream. <laughs> Apparently, in that, I heard her saying, and the other kids can choke down their Pepto if they want, but I get ice cream, right? Now, you laugh, but how many of you think that you deserve a little bit of dessert with your suffering, right? And we do this in different ways. We say, you know, I've had a really hard week. I think I'm going to go shopping, right? I had a really hard week. I need some comfort food. I had a really hard, hard month. I think I deserve a vacation right now, right? If whenever you say I and deserve, and, and the next word isn't like judgment, you know, <laughs> then there's a problem there, right? Right? The body that I deserve is about 450 pounds of Chipotle. That's the body that I deserve, right? <laughs> I read a novel recently where um, the, 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 the main character, he was a medical student in, from Ethiopia, and he, he eventually comes to the United States. He's working there, and he contrasts what his patients' attitudes are towards sickness in Ethiopia and in America. And this is what he says. He says, um, in Ethiopia, when my patients come to me, they assume that they are dying and they are surprised when I tell them that they are going to live. My patients in America, when they come to me, they are assuming that they are living forever and they are surprised when I tell them that they are going to die, right? Guys, you know that the death rate has always kind of been the same, right? It's like one death per person. That's, that's kind of how it works, right? If you believe that you deserve long life and a certain standard of living, guys, that's putting diesel in your tank. It's not only not helping you, it's actually going to make it harder for you to deal when suffering comes. And that adversity will destroy you unless you let go of those assumptions. You're called to follow Jesus. Where did you think that would take you? To follow a man who died on a cross and And for the Bible to say, you need to be like him. (laughs) For you to understand that he didn't avoid pain, that he endured it, and he did that to rescue sinners from what they deserved. But he didn't do that to free us from a life of pain yet. It's coming, not yet. Peter said, dear friends, Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So that's one piece of cultural wisdom, this whole I deserve it thing that we need to look at and we say, you know, it's a nice thought, but I'm really not sure how in the world I can ever back that up, right? Here's another one. I'll be real quick about this one. Um, I can handle this on my own. Uh, this is wisdom for the rugged Western individualist, right? It's the person who's heard phrases like, uh, never let them see you sweat, big girls don't cry, I am a rock, I am an island, right? Things like that. I'll insert dumb cliche here. All of those things, right? I've got this hardship under control. I can deal with it on my own. You have to ask yourself, where, where did that come from? Did it come from your childhood? Did it come from college? Did it come from your work environment where they said, hey, your stuff is your stuff. You need to deal with that on your own. If you're, not, if you're in a tough spot and you're not talking to someone about it, you're not letting other people in on it, you're not seeking help, you're not even admitting 
that it's hard or that there's a hurt, then honestly, I think that you're leaning towards two-sold on that because you cannot, you cannot give it to God and keep it to yourself at the same time. If you're unwilling to be vulnerable in your, in your hardship, then you need to ask yourself why. Is it, is it my pride? Is it my vanity? Is it my, is it my, my denial? You need to see that this assumption will destroy you too. It actually makes you less capable of dealing with suffering because you've cut out the very ones that are going to help you. Wisdom is humility. Wisdom is admitting that you have a need, right? Wisdom is looking for help from the outside. I could say a lot more about that, but for the sake of time, let me do this. Number three, we'll end with this one. If God truly cared, this wouldn't be happening. We assume that, as I said before, a loving God would bestow upon us a relatively pain-free life, And so when tragedy or loss hits us, we tend to question God's goodness um, or we even go further and we question his existence, right? And so again, this is based on a a false wisdom that if you take it into your suffering, it's actually gonna make matters worse. It's diesel fuel. It will poison you because it takes out of the picture the very thing that you need. Look at this, Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to believe God because anyone who comes to him (laughs) must believe that he exists, that he is, right? And that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. That he is and that he is good. If you decide in your suffering to just cut God out of the equation, you decide, well, even if it does exist, I'm not happy with him right now. So I'm going to deal with this on my own. Then you've just let go of the one that can actually help you through it and give you the wisdom that you need for that, that trial. It is simply not biblical to say that hardship demonstrates that God doesn't care. Because... If I could say it this way, all of God's quote-unquote favorite people in the scripture, they all suffered greatly. Exhibit A was Jesus, right? The greatest example is Jesus ultimately hanging on a cross. The cross says God cares. He cares enough to put Jesus to stand in your place, to take your judgment, to take what you truly deserved. And in fact, I think that the cross answers all of these alternate wisdoms that I've just, I've just put up already because the cross says this. It says you deserve judgment and you couldn't handle that on your own. You could not save yourself. And Jesus cared enough to rescue you by stepping into your suffering and into your place. So it doesn't work to say I, deserve, I don't deserve this suffering. I can handle it on my own and God obviously doesn't care the cross actually goes, runs countercurrent to all three of those, right? Does that make sense? Not to the world. This is foolishness to the world. Do you remember in, uh, uh, it talks about wisdom in First in Corinthians, it says Jews demand signs, Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and don't miss this, the wisdom of God. Do you want wisdom? This says wisdom is a person. Jesus is the wisdom of God. If you want wisdom, he has a name. Ultimately, when we ask for wisdom, we're asking for Jesus to come into our life and to make sense of what we're going through. We're asking for him to enter our scene and to give us his lens on the world. We're asking for him to come and and dwell with us, right? And when that happens, we... We surrender to that. We say, take myself and I will be ever only all to thee. Take my life, right? 
What we're going to do right now, we're going to end uh, uh, differently than we often do. The, this last song that we sing, uh, guys, this is going to be, this is a prayer. Many of our songs are, but we are going to strip this one down to make it as, as much a, uh, um, a moment of prayer as we possibly can. And we want you to use it that way, to say, um, wisdom is seek the Lord, right? Wisdom is invite him in. Wisdom is... Um, all, all of these other um, alternate realities are, are not going to save me like Jesus can. And so I'm inviting him in. So we're going we're gonna to pray as we sing. But first, let me pray before we sing. Let's pray. Father, we commit to you our moments and our days. We commit to you our, our words, our actions, and our heart. And all of this, Lord, is a part of the song that we're about to sing. We pray that it would be um, not just words, but the prayer of our heart. Uh, Lord, whatever was from this that, uh, that is part of your wisdom, Lord, please let it stick. We don't just want to be curious about it. We want to commit to it. Uh, Lord, as we give our tithes and offerings, we, we do it because we believe that you know this is best for us to pry our hands off of the things that we would be so prone to idolize. And Lord, would you launch us from this place in ceaseless praise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.